Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Ask OTC, the show where we answer all of your questions from the week in European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. Straight away with this one from Justin. What result from match day one of the Champions League surprised you the most, Miguel? Um, it, it says a lot about everything we discussed on the, on the main part, where, where the Champions League is headed. There were very few surprises and that also the one I'm picking, which is the fact that Copenhagen got a draw against Galatasaray, given how, I suppose, limited uh, the resources are in Danish football. Uh, but also how, because, I mean, it's, it was overshadowed, obviously, by the Premier League and the Saudi Pro League, but the Turkish clubs were willing to spend this summer. And Galatasaray, mm. the, the big name of Wilfred Zaha, who came off the bench and set, and set a goal up. Um, but the fact that it was a two-all draw, that Copenhagen got the result in, in Istanbul... That did surprise me. <laughs> Beyond that, best of luck with your pick, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I could say I'm still, I, I'm still surprised by the result that Trevena Svezda only went down 3-1 uh, at Manchester yeah, yeah. City. And the fact that they took the lead early on. Other than that, I would say Salzburg winning at Benfica. Although, yeah, even, yeah. even that is a bit of a red herring because Benfica were down to 10 men in the first quarter of an hour. They conceded two penalties in the first 14 minutes after Roger Schmidt, their coach, hilariously sat there in the press conference before the game and said, yeah, we can't make any mistakes in this one. <laughs> oh, oh, and also, the other, the other side to that is, and um, while the kind of the temptation would be to look at that as kind of a Portuguese club against an Austrian club, Portuguese football being superior to Austrian, well, it's not really in the sense that it's uh, an Austrian club who are part of a, a much bigger operation. Yes, that, that they are, although I think also they've lost some... Yeah, yeah, enormous players over the last couple of years. Players who it's it's not possible for them to replace. But in terms of the conveyor belt that produces players, it shows they can still 
yeah. you know, create a very, very competent team despite losing some, some massive talent. So, hardly any surprises then. Uh, this from Tyler. We found a few, didn't we? Oh, I know you did. You struggled, though. Uh, this from Tyler. What is a really interesting and fascinating question, this, and I'm sure both of you have got a view on this. What's the ceiling for Dutch and Portuguese clubs, as we've just been talking about disparities between teams or uh, na- national uh, leagues. What's the ceiling for Dutch and Portuguese clubs in Europe this season? So f- for me, if you if you look at I think, obviously teams can surpass this if the bounces of the ball go their way, all the rest of it. I think if a Portuguese club gets to the quarterfinal, that's a very successful season. If a Dutch club gets to the last 16, that's a very successful season, uh, which is quite, I mean, even to say both of those compared to where we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago is quite a depressing statement. Uh, even more depressing if you go back to my generation 20, 30 years ago with regards to the Dutch teams. Yes, yes. And I think Tyler's question is very interesting in that it pairs yeah. Dutch and Portuguese because, of course, for the future of them going forward into the new fat, uh, format of the Champions League, it really matters who finishes above the other. Yeah. And, and, and the French clubs are involved in this as well in terms of the UEFA coefficient. It could have massive access implications going forward into into the following season in, in, in terms of how you get in and in the seasons going forward as well. So it's, it's not just about being able to, to win the competition, as you and Miguel were saying. It's about like getting enough wins, getting enough yeah. points to actually get your country up the coefficient because that bit of the coefficient table forget the big four it's not about them it's about that little bit below between five and seven for what really is Europe's fifth league at at the moment it's very close the Dutch did very well last season and they've done the very very well out of the last two seasons in the Conference League. And this was something that uh, Jorge Nuno Pinto de Costa, the the legendary president of FC Porto, talked about because Mm -hmm. he said at the start of the season, and I don't think that many people would disagree with him, he said it is ridiculous that a Europa Conference League win or winning the trophy would get you the same amount of coefficient points as winning the Champions League. And on one hand, he's right. On the other hand, really, it sort of it sort of helps those teams. Yeah, it, 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 it helps those it countries. European football, exactly, or, or, exactly. Or, or, unless the problem becomes though. that's what it should do. But yeah. really, it leaves them more vulnerable to yeah. their close competitors. Or, or, or what happens is that if, say, an English team takes either of the competition seriously, then it just bolsters kind of, or one of the bigger clubs takes it seriously. One of the, then it bolsters the kind of coefficients of the top league exactly. and, and, we, and furthers we, the gap. And we were talking about this right before we came in here, weren't we? How Aston Villa are going to have to go something, yeah. not, not win the Europa Conference League, just as just as West Ham last season. But I think if if you look at this, I mean, we talked about the in, in the main OTC yesterday, we talked about the specific coaching issue with PSV. I think this is the bit where coaches are, earn their money, isn't it, Miguel? Because you look at Feyenoord holding on to Arne Schlott, who, who yeah. didn't go to Tottenham in the end and you know I think Tottenham are pretty happy with what, what they got yeah, yeah. In, in the end so it's, it's worked out for everyone but obviously you can't really look too hard at this game with Celtic because a bit like the Benfica game you look at the two uh, Celtic red cards have affected the game but Feyenoord getting off on the right foot has given them a massive boost in a group that Lazio is not a happy place this season mm-hmm. Atletico have not been good 
in the Champions League for quite a long time now, which I think is easily overlooked because yeah. now we just look at them as a certain level of club. I think if you look at these, like Feyenoord and Ajax in the lower competition, they've got a chance to maybe do something this season. I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think Ajax are good enough to do something. But Feyenoord, what would it do for them if they were to get out of the group, yeah. particularly as France only had two teams qualifying for the Champions League and not three because Marseille went out in the, yeah. in the playoffs. And that, was, that fed into Slot's decision, of course, as well, because mm. there was that feeling that, okay, give it one more and we can maybe do something special with Feyenoord. Yeah, and I, I think it's a bit of a look around and thinking yeah. Van Nistelrooy leaving, leaving PSV, yeah. Ajax are a total mess. I, I can definitely understand where he yeah, took the extra yeah, year. Yeah. 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 yeah, this from Poppleton Pink who's talking about the, uh, I suppose, the power that fans or ultras seem to have um, at some clubs in Europe. What's the Marseille situation, which we have talked of uh, once or twice on OTC itself. Yeah, no, not, not this situation. Well, well, tell me about this situation then. How did this situation occur? And would clubs ever draw back and give ultras less of a say going forward. Is this even possible? Well, what the issue is here is uh, this week, uh, Marcelino has left his job as as Marseille coach after seven competitive games, uh, which is less than ideal. Uh, I I think it's it's, it's fair to say. Um, Part of the reason is his, a big part of the reason is his great closeness with um, Pablo Longoria, the the, the president of Marseille, who, who brought him in. He was very much... Um, Marcelino is very much his man uh, when he arrived to place, uh, replace Igor Tudor this this summer. Now, there were talks between um, representatives of the Marseille Ultra Groups and the uh, directors of the club, uh, led, bonkers, by, led by Pablo Longoria. Well, I, I don't think... I don't think dialogue with, with, with fans is an issue. That's something that should definitely happen. The, the issue is how it's rolled out because... Um, the representatives in the room were representative of up to 27,000 fans who are members of those those ultra groups and those those supporter clubs. Now, what um, Longoria and Javier Ribalta, who um, is, is, is his right-hand man, suggested is that they had been threatened by those ultras. And they said, look, we can't continue under these conditions. On Tuesday morning, you had Marcelino telling his players and some other senior figures that he was going to leave the club. Um, they've not been um, clear on who, who was going to actually lead the team um, last night. It was, it was Abenardo sitting on the bench in, in, in the end, in, in the game at Ajax last night. Um, but they, they were unclear who would sit on the bench. Some, some said it would be Jean-Pierre Papin. And it's a mess already. And Marseille are unbeaten in the league up until this point. I mean, they didn't beat Toulouse last weekend, which obviously caused a bit of consternation because there's always huge pressure there. And it's not just about the results on the pitch. It's about the construction and reconstruction of the team. I think Longoria turned some of the fans against him by um, bringing in someone who's so close to him as as coach. Not that that's an excuse for for any threats or perceived threats. By the way, the ultra groups have given a, a different account of what actually happened and said that there there were there were no threats made and that they've been misrepresented in this situation but i think you talk about in the question by poppleton pink it is is talking about how um how it would be possible to give ultras less of a say now under frank mccourt the american marseille have tried to do that already they took away 
some merchandising. They took away some ticket control from some of the major ultra groups. And some would argue if they'd have left it that way, not saying they should, but if they'd have left it that way, it's, it's a model sort of closer to what you would get with the Barras Bravas actually in Argentina or something like that. It's quite unusual for Europe. I mean, influential ultras are one thing. Ultras who are able to control ticket sales and merchandising is, is something a little different. Maybe if that had been the status quo, like McCourt took a, a big risk in doing that, I would say. And so clearly, if something's going a little bit wrong, then the ultras feel they don't have the control they used to have and leap in and feel they they have to get involved. Now, like we said, that that is no excuse for any personal threats or anything like that. But clearly, between those ultras who are so used to being part of the club and an influential voice, since Frank McCourt took over, what, four or five years ago, they've felt a fracture from the club and they've felt the club slipping from their control a little bit. So it's not just about what's happening on the pitch. How do you feel about that, Mikel? The idea of ultras fans, these sort of super fans, if you like, having control or that amount of control in a club. You couldn't see that in the British leagues, could you? You couldn't see that. There, there wouldn't be that level. Well, the, the, Although, the, fans, the fans really mobilise for a common cause. I, th- yeah. I think that's the amazing thing with what happened. Liverpool fans arguably so, do. Yes, but I, I think... With the Super, when, and when, the super League is the And, and the, the, the Super League, yeah. But uh, generally, with ticket pricing and stuff yeah. like that, it's all a bit... But what actually happens often for time, is, is the opposite in English football. No, and again, I'm not saying, but I mean more so there can be a dynamic where suddenly you get a strand of fans defending the club for raising ticket prices because exactly. we, we need to compete, which is just kind of but, but, exactly. And like, like say for example, if you're a, a City fan, you said I had to pay sixty quid to get in at Arsenal. An Arsenal fan, rather than many Arsenal fans, rather than saying that would be unacceptable, would say, well, we had to pay. 50 yeah. quid or 55 quid to get in at Liverpool. You know, there's no sense of this is wrong. Let's unite for this, like would happen in Germany, for example, which is a shame because when you see that collective power that English fans yeah. have got, it's really what UEFA wanted to use to yeah, help yeah. them get out of the Super League. The Marseille story is quite an interesting, maybe, intersection of a few of these issues in that it is a good thing for fans to have more control. And obviously, we, I, I mean, my a personal opinion as a as a professional journalist I suppose is that football should move to a point where clubs as community institutions are fan owned uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should translate into the exertion of fan power we saw around Marseille no. so it's one of those where I'm a bit conflicted about yeah Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Okay, the one I'm sure none of us are conflicted about is this question from Phil. 
Andre Onana has been nominated for the Ballon d'Or because of his performances while at Inter. Something's gone wrong. And Phil asks, what's gone wrong at Man United? Surely the best is yet to come, dot, dot, dot. But I, I, there's a very interesting thing here, I think. Um, I mean, clearly, Andre Onana, I mean, I was at the, uh, a few of Inter's Champions League games last season. He made some brilliant saves. Uh, he's clearly a very good keeper. I think he's been very poor at United but with his feet now although I do think some of that again is the structure of the Manchester United team but, the defence in particular yeah, and, but yeah yeah and in terms of how they can play and it's mitigated his ability to play out from the back which is why you often see him hit it long uh, but that's I, uh, and this is actually something an irony actually here it, it, this happened to De Gea his predecessor but with Spain where because he he couldn't play out from the back to the level that was expected from a Spanish national goalkeeper it started to affect his confidence and to the point where he started to make mistakes with his hands. And the, uh, again, they, they're very different keepers. But Onana, it does feel that they really, it's as if his confidence has been affected. I mean, I think two of the goals against against Brighton uh, on Saturday and certainly one against, at least one against Bayern Munich on, on Wednesday night, they went through him uh, in a way that you wouldn't really expect. And yeah, it's a confidence mistake, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And isn't it... I, I isn't it just he- like the first one at Bayern? I, I remember hearing a story... Um, about Pep Guardiola after he signed Claudio Bravo and apparently Guardiola has this theory that if because of how um, isolated or individualistic the position is a bit like a number nine at the other end if they make chances but he, he, he thinks it's very specific to goalkeepers where if a goalkeeper makes an error in a big stadium they, it, it's very difficult to record. And he, he put Claudio, Claudio Bravo's troubles at City down to exactly that, that he made a, a few errors in a big stadium in one of his first games, mainly against Manchester United at Old Trafford, and never really recovered. Well, uh, I, I don't want to speak for goalkeepers for, because I am not a goalkeeper, but I think it's a very particular thing, isn't it? And we've, we've had it recently with all the chat in, in the Premier League about the Ramsdale-Raya rotation thing, which people are completely unable to... To, to get their heads, heads around. around, yeah, exactly. And I think the, the thing is, when you see um, a goalkeeper make an error, because of the individual nature of the position and because of the position on the pitch, you've got a long time to think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that is a, a huge thing as well. And you see that manifested in goalkeepers who try to make stuff happen. Yeah, to yeah. To, to get out of that sort of area of confidence. It's something that happens to say Joe Hart, for example, which is the last thing you want a goalkeeper to do. You want them to be able to get past that. Now, you look at Claudia Tafarel, who, um, the Brazilian goalkeeper who won the World Cup, who um, had a a great career as a goalkeeping coach ever since. He was at um, Galatasaray for a long time, now now at Liverpool. I think it's something that Jonathan Wilson wrote about in his, his, his book, The Outsider, actually. And something that, marks Tafarel's career what makes him a great goalkeeper is not just that he's a great goalkeeper he shows up in big games he made some massive mistakes in big games but his ability his ability to get past to it, shut it out. was unsurpassed yeah. and that is something that makes a massive difference now I think the thing that you've got to note about Anana is the last couple of years of his career very very turbulent indeed so you've got the doping ban and then you've got almost sailed to Leon that doesn't happen where he almost goes and joins Peter Bosch but doesn't then he goes to Inter 
where he reinflates his reputation massively, having not played a lot of football, actually. He does a great job in reinflating his reputation, particularly with his performances, as Miguel said, at the back end of the Champions League. And all of a sudden, he's on the big stage. And if you go backwards, it's not a long time between from when he's out of the Ajax team to when all of a sudden he's expected to be this silver bullet for Manchester United. And as you say, so different from De Gea, the back four have got to get used to playing with him as well in a completely different way because he's the exact opposite of what De Gea is. Uh, We've got time for one more. Um, This is from Dave. Having made a decent start, including beating PSG last weekend, could Nice finally achieve something this season? They have a decent squad. They've invested a fair amount of money, a big catchment area, and they've got a lot of potential with an extra Champions League place up for grabs in League 1. Is European football a realistic goal for them? It's a possible. Um, I think the best of Nice and the you worst don't sound of, convinced though. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> not because I think the best of Nice and the worst of Nice there is a gap. I think you can see them uh, going to PSG, uh, a game in which they're very, very convincing, and think, okay, fair enough. You can look at the transfer spend over the last couple of years, and you can think they're serious. You can look at we talked about him in the main show. Um, Tara Moffi, who was brilliant at the Parc de Prince last week and completely ran roughshod all over PSG and think, okay, they're serious. But I think you look a little bit deeper into it and they spent a lot on, to me, the main thing that would recommend the idea of them getting to the next level is the fact that they took all of Lanz's recruiters. They took Florent Gisolfi, the, the sporting director who we've, we've talked about before. But the difference between the brochure and the reality is often a thing in football. And Gisolfi was sold the idea of, you're going to have this money, um, it's, it's, it's going to be um, an opportunity for you to build this club from the up, as you say, like new training ground, a relatively new stadium. As Dave says, the catchment area, all that sort of stuff. And then it gets there and the project's way different. Now, the amount of money that he thought he was going to spend it's a lot less. Now, if they got to the point at the end of this season, I would go as far as to say, if they don't make the Champions League, and in fact, even if they do make the Champions League, I think they'll end up selling Moffy because a Premier League club will come and take him. Now, remember, he could have gone to the Premier League when he, he moved last year. You know, he, he chose to go to Nice instead of going to West Ham, who were offering him more money, for example. Um, I don't know if part of that is he looks at West Ham maybe following English football and thinks, you know, strike a graveyard, I'm staying away from there. But he will get other Premier League opportunities. There's no doubt about it. He's, he's built for it. He's an absolutely terrific player. I think it's going to be tough for them to hold on to their very best players. And if you look at their other recruitment, it's about developing young players. So because of the age of the team, I think it's difficult for them to get themselves a Champions League place. And if they don't, I think they're in a position where they probably end up selling again. Well, there was a bit of surprise maybe Catherine Turam didn't go this summer. A lot of interest. Mm. Liverpool really liked him. Uh, I'm not sure actually what happened there. I suppose they, they had better options elsewhere. He got convinced to stay for an extra year. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think yeah, they'll definitely end up selling him next summer. Yeah. And, and he's, he's a player with, a, with an absolutely massive future. But then they'll, they'll probably bring through the next 
Catherine Turan. You just said, as you said it there about mafia, um, maybe this one a bit off the continent, if you like, or at least off this continent. <laughs> uh, Nigeria suddenly for the next World Cup. I mean, they, they they should be looking very strong. That forward line is remarkable. Yeah, how many can you fit in one team? Well, I suppose is the yeah, question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. Do, do, do you fancy doing the can can, Andy? I mean, for Miguel's sake. <laughs> go, go on, Em. Okay, from ASAP Mike, why does Bayern play the can-can after goals? Does it have some significance or are they trying to find the most aggravating song to hear after you've been scored on? No, it's, it's funny actually because literally I had asked uh, a WhatsApp group with other journalists why, why they did this literally an hour before that question came in. So I was also curious, especially I've been to Bayern games and they've played it. Uh, and I did wonder whether it was because Often back, the composer of the uh, is it Orpheus, it's Orpheus in the Underworld? Is it the, the, mm. the actual Swede? Uh, whether he's from Munich, but he's not. He's from Cologne, uh, which leaves me. <laughs> but but, it, but it, is, it is widely used in Germany. It's also used for, for, as, uh, and a song associated with France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's well, it's widely used at Borkum use it after they score a goal. Obviously, slightly less frequently than than Bayern. It's not just that Bayern play it. It's that they play it for a little bit too long, <laughs> as, as as well. That's it's like, yeah, we, we know you've it's scored now. Good, yeah. You can stop it. Yeah. And of course, because the Alliance is a relatively new stadium, the speakers are just yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying, just, just as a bit, of, I mean, a little joke I've got, one of those in jokes I've got with my friends from home, the Thomas Muller refrain. Anytime he scored, I remember hearing it for the first time at the 2012 <laughs> Champions League final. You know, the way he picks up speed as well, like on a call and response. Thomas Muller, Thomas Muller, Thomas Muller. <laughs> Only well, the third player to get 100 Champions League yeah. wins. All I'm saying, that one against United. All I'm saying is thank you for listening to Ask OTC. If you would like to ask a question on next week's show, you can contact us at any time at Dotson, at Ibayo, at Andy Brassel, at Miguel Delaney, and at OTC Pod. Or you can email us, otc at footballramble.com. Gentlemen. On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com